Good morning, Grace Point. I am so glad you're joining us this morning as we are gathering online for week, whatever it is of this new normal that we're living in right now. Um, you may have heard last week on social media, I shared some stuff in the Grace Point group, and then we had some uh, Grace Point page shared some information. We are pausing the series we've been in um, for the last several weeks, uh, where we've been reimagining, reframing, and reclaiming the language of faith. And we're going to begin a series that's going to run for the next several weeks called Meaning Making, trying to make sense of things that don't. And so um, what's going to happen is today I'm going to just share a, an introduction of sorts to the series. And then I'm collecting questions, the questions that you, our community, is current, are currently processing, wondering about, thinking about. Um, and uh, over the next several weeks, I'll be responding to those questions and offering whatever insight I can into those. But I want to begin today with just sort of setting the stage um, as from, a, from the perspective of the Christian tradition. Um, because these are really, really heavy times. They're hard times. These days are difficult. Um, they're difficult because as of the recording of this, this message, there have been more than 2 million cases of COVID-19 in the world, 677,529 here in the U.S., and 35,394 people in the U.S. have died as a result of uh, this virus. So these are dark, heavy days. Um, there's sort of this collective fog that seems to be hanging over everyone and everything, this collective grief that we're all swimming in all the time. Uh, I recently, uh, for the, like last week, for the first time really since the lockdown had happened, I went into a grocery store and I went in there with my mask on and I went in there to get in and get out and to get the items we needed as quickly as possible. And it, as I walked in there, I hadn't been around a lot of people at all. And there weren't a ton of people in there, but I, just seeing people pushing their carts and going from the fruits and vegetables to the dairy, like whatever they were doing, there just seemed to be this, this like heaviness on them. Um, everywhere you looked, there was, and, and, and people sort of regarded each other with a little bit of fear, right? Like trying to keep distance like we're supposed to do, six feet. And now there were people in there who weren't wearing masks. There were people in there who weren't social distancing, but everybody sort of looked at each other, uh, looked at each other with some sense of suspicion and for good reason, right? Like this thing, uh, this virus gets transmitted through contact. And so as I was in there, I just remember looking around thinking, all of us are so sad and, and we're not sure where to put it and we don't know what to do with it because we aren't really even sure necessarily what's happening. And so there's a heaviness, there's a grief and there's a fear. And that's just with the virus itself. But the other things that this virus has done, sort of the other dominoes that have fallen, have brought even more of that heaviness. Uh, lots and lots of people have lost jobs, so there's a concern around money and the economy. Uh, this is taking a toll on our mental health. This bringing all sorts of worry, uh, either because we have loved ones or because we are people who are going out, having to go out and continue to work like nurses and doctors and first responders and restaurants and food delivery services and grocery stores um, and people who run liquor stores, right? Like I, I read this week that um, liquor sales are up 20%, and I was like, only 20%? Right, but there are people who are still going to work every day and they're still having to interact with people. Some, some of us are interacting with sick people and that brings a ton of worry. Worry not only for our well-being, but for the well-being of our families and friends that we may have to come in contact with. So this is bringing such a heaviness to all of us. Everybody is touched by this. And in normal moments, but especially in extraordinary moments like this one, we try to find meaning in our experiences. And I actually think making meaning, that search for meaning, the, the question of not just this happened, but like why 
did this happen, is a central part of what it means to be a human being. Viktor Frankl, the um, world-renowned psychiatrist, in his bestseller, Man's Search for Meaning, he actually said the search for meaning is the primary intrinsic motivation of human beings. I think what he's saying is looking for meaning, not just this happened, but what does it mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for um, my life? Uh, That is, I think, what it means to be human in some ways. I think we want to be, especially if we want to be fully integrated and whole human beings. And I think some of the angst we're all feeling is we don't really know where to put this. We don't know what, we don't have a category for it. This is such a new phenomenon where we talk about the new normal, but this is anything but normal. And we don't really know where to put it. If we have other experiences, we can, you know, they're normal. We can fit them in. This is an abnormal experience. We, we don't know where to put it. But when we're searching for meaning, when we're getting to that why or what do I do with it or what happens now, one of the places we often turn to seek some sort of understanding is through the lens of faith. For, for lots and lots of people, they make meaning by taking their experiences and looking at it through the lens of their faith. So what, what does our tradition, the Christian tradition, specifically a progressive Christian tradition or lens, what does it offer us during these moments. And I think it's important to begin with the acknowledgement that the Bible was born out of trauma. I don't think we often think about that. We, we, we often talk about the Bible and lots and lots of people have them. It's apparently the best-selling book ever, right? Um, this library of texts, however, uh, it came to us from an experience of human trauma. People wrote the Bible and in their context or in their experience, one of them impetuses for one of the reasons they actually put this down into words is trying to make sense of their own trauma. For example, the community that produced what we call the the Old Testament or what's known as the Hebrew Bible, they were continually oppressed and occupied in their history, right? They were oppressed and occupied by Syria. They were exiled, deported from their land into the land of Babylon when Babylon conquered them. And after Babylon came Persia and then came Greece. And eventually in the New Testament era, era, there came the Roman Empire. So much of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, was composed before, during, or just after their experience of exile. Right When Babylon, the world empire, came in and destroyed their temple and collected the best and the brightest and deported them to Babylon, and everybody else was sort of um, left to just fend for themselves. But they were taken from their culture and their experience, and they were deported all the way to Babylon, and they were essentially given new identities. There's this, and this is why often so much of the Hebrew scripture was created, was to preserve their identity in a place that was trying to erase it. And some of the things they wrote in this time, when they just had their temple destroyed and they're, they're living as strangers in a strange land, so much of their experience that they wrote about is just so full of grief. Listen to these words from Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, And there we wept when we remembered Zion, another word for um, Jerusalem, Israel. On the willows there, we hung up our harps. For there, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Listen to those words. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept. There, we hung up our harps, meaning we can't play those songs anymore. 
And yet their captors are sort of jeering them on and saying, oh, sing us one of those nice songs that you sang back in the temple when you would worship your God. And part of this is that in the ancient world, there was this understanding that gods were tied to geography. And so for the the Jewish community, their God was tied to the geography of Israel or or Palestine or what became known as Judea. And so if one group defeated another group, so when Babylon comes in and destroys the temple and, and takes Israel captive, Um, It wasn't just that Israel had lost and that their way of life had ceased. It was that something else had happened because ultimately the physical battle was sort of a representation of a bigger battle between the gods. And so in the ancient world, people believed if one group of people destroyed another, defeated another in battle, it was because their god defeated the other people's god in battle. So this is not just sitting on the banks of a river in Babylon weeping because life as you know it has ended. They're also weeping because their God, the God who they thought was mighty and powerful, the God who liberates the oppressed, the God who brought them out of Egypt from slavery, this God has been defeated. How do you keep singing songs about your God who has been defeated? I mean, that's their sense of exile. They have not only lost their way of life, but the thing that often people want to lean on to describe and explain these moments, they lost that. Their temple was gone, their God was defeated, and there was nothing to look forward to. And there's a sense of hopelessness. Like, is it ever gonna go back to the way it was? Is it possible that somehow something could be made out of this, something could happen that transforms this moment? Or are we really gonna sit by the rivers of Babylon weeping? forever. It's, it's interesting how ancient stories and ancient texts can actually say quite a bit about where we are today. And the way they came to terms or tried to come to terms with suffering, the questions like, where was God? How could God let this happen? Um, those sorts of questions. So they wrote, they tried to describe why in their writings. And they produced books, like there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's a book of poetry, and it laments the fall of Jerusalem. You have books like Ecclesiastes, and if you're really depressed, do not read Ecclesiastes. It essentially just says, you know, at the end of it all, everything's meaningless, right? Like that's where the writer came came up, uh, what he came up with. And then there's books like Job that are really trying to make sense of suffering, and they really don't do a very good job of it. They they do an imperfect job of it, I guess we should say, because the the story of Job is a story of a man who had everything, and he loses everything, and his his children are, are taken from him in an accident, and he's given a disease, and all this stuff happens. In the end of the book of Job, the writer says, but you know what? Job had more kids, and he got more stuff, and it's just... Like what? Like like getting more kids? Great, but it doesn't replace the grief and the pain that uh, Job and his family experienced over the loss of these other kids, right? So even in the scriptures, they're trying to make sense. What do we do with this? Where do we put it? How do we understand it? And and, and they sort of take the, the the Job offers maybe the perspective that we sometimes want to take, which is, well, we don't know, but let's just move on to happier times. But that really isn't how it works, is it? We don't just move on to happier times. And that's not just true for the Hebrew scriptures. This is actually also true for what we call the New Testament, the Christian scriptures. The New Testament uh, is born out also out of trauma. For example, Paul, uh, one of the main figures in the New Testament, Paul, he, he has seven letters that are genuine letters, which means scholars beyond a shadow of a doubt all agree that Paul wrote seven of those letters that are attributed to him. 
Those seven letters were written during times of hardship. Paul wrote many of them from prison. Paul wrote some of them from death row, knowing that his life was about to be taken from him. In in the Gospels, which were written later, so Paul wrote in the 50s, the Gospels were written, the earliest Gospel, Mark, was written either in the late 60s or early 70s. And the pivotal event um, of that era was, again, the city of Jerusalem being destroyed and the second Jewish temple being razed to the ground by the Romans. There was a rebellion by um, some of the Jews, and Rome came in and crushed it. And so the Gospels that we know that tell the story of Jesus are either, uh, Mark is either just before or just after, and all the rest of them come in the aftermath of life as they knew it being stamped out. They're written in the rubble of the fall of Jerusalem. Almost every page of the Bible has been impacted by trauma and loss. It's been impacted by the displacement of people. It's been impacted by life as they knew it and expected it and trusted it being completely demolished. And often when we read passages like in the Gospels about the end of the world where it talks about not one stone being left on another and war and rumors of war, like that's not talking about the end of the world for us. It's describing the end of their world as they knew it. Those texts are about the temple and they're either being in Mark written just before or just after, likely just after Um, the temple was taken down and raised to the ground. The Bible, on every page, it seems, has been impacted by trauma. And so the tradition that we participate in, the Christian tradition, is um, familiar with sorrow and acquainted with grief. It it isn't this thing that is just to be clinging to, clung, clung, cling, you know what I'm saying, to while we're essentially just looking to be move on and be happy again. The Bible actually invites our lamentation. It invites our grief. It invites our questions. It invites our sorrow. And it actually has something to say to them, even if it's just me too, right? In some ways, when we read Paul's letters and he's suffering, when we read the Hebrew scriptures, the laments, and we read some of the Psalms that are just begging for help and no help is inside. Like we, we can connect with that. We can get that. We, can, we know what that feels like. And there's this this version of Christianity that exists in the world that's sort of varnished and plastic where everybody has a smile and every day's a Friday and everything's going to be great. And that if you are somehow grieving or crying, you you, you experience loss and it's, it's hard for you to move on. It's somehow you're not faithful enough or you don't believe it enough or you don't believe the right things the right way. There's this version of Christianity that it's almost like feeling not feeling sorrow and sadness and not weeping is a badge of honor. I'll never forget um, when I was in my first pastorate um, in, my, in my hometown, in my home church. Uh, I was the interim pastor there for uh, for a while. And I'll never forget being with somebody who's a part of that community who had just experienced a loss in his family, somebody who was pretty close to. And I remember uh, the first time I saw him after that loss, I, I went up and I said, I'm so, so sorry to hear about you know, the loss you experienced, is there anything we can do? And he'd stop me and say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm great. I'm so good. They are happy. They're in heaven with Jesus. Everything's perfectly fine. And I, I just remember thinking, that doesn't seem like a healthy way to respond to grief. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever you believe about what happens when we die, I hope that's comforting to you. But that comfort doesn't take away that this was a real loss that leaves a real void that brought real pain. And when we sort of cast our tradition in the lens of, well, it's about joy and it's about happiness and it's about being able to trust and have faith. And if you do all those things in the right way, then you'll never be sad. You'll never grieve. You'll never be hurt because you know where the story's going. 
And that's just not healthy. And it doesn't represent the version of the Christian tradition that emerges from a Jesus who wept. I mean, if you look at the Gospels, uh, yeah, Jesus in moments was celebratory and joyful. And there are moments at the grave of Lazarus or in Gethsemane facing his own death where Jesus breaks down and weeps. In the story of Lazarus, Lazarus is raised and Jesus still weeps. Right? Last week, we looked at a story of Mary Magdalene, who's standing in front of the risen Christ, weeping because of the loss. We need a tradition that can hold all of the experiences of life, that makes space for our grief, that makes space absolutely for our joy, but that also recognizes that in Jesus, we, in, in the people who um, told the Jesus story, cast it in such a way that we have somebody who gets what grief is all about. So a couple things as we lean into this new series. Um, uh, first, I want you to know that you don't need permission to grieve, especially not ecclesiastical permission. You don't need a church. You don't need a pastor to tell you that it's okay to grieve. Your grief matters. And if anybody tries to tell you that it's unfaithful or that you just need to move on or that your questions don't matter, then they are not speaking through the lens of the Christian tradition that we have been given um, through uh, the life and teachings of Jesus, because Jesus makes space for all that. So I want you to know that you don't need permission to grieve. I also want you to know that I don't have answers. <laughs> I, I know that sometimes pastors want to come off as if they have some sort of secret body of knowledge about this stuff that nobody else has. And I don't have Answers, not objective ones that I can back up with data and say, look, if you do this, this, and this, 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 this will help you move through it, or this will answer your questions, or this will put all the stuff, all the doubts. No, I don't have any of that. What I actually have is it's what T.S. Eliot called hints and guesses. I have experiences. I have some collected wisdom from those who have shaped me. And I think uh, one of the things I have to offer is I have hope. And so those are the things I'll offer as I respond to your questions in these weeks. Not objective answers not certainties, because those don't exist. What I'll try to offer is the most honest response I can to the moment and the worry and the fear and what we're all carrying around, the grief we're all carrying around right now. And three, I want you to know that your questions are sacred. They are not sacrilegious. They are not to be hushed and pushed away. They do not show some sort of weakness in your faith. Actually, I think being able to ask questions shows that your faith is perhaps stronger than you've ever imagined, right? Because it has space for doubt. It has space for questions. It has space for the worry and the fear and the grief we're all carrying around. And then for what I hope I can ultimately offer is maybe some insights and ways of seeing um, this moment, ways of responding to this moment. And what I ultimately want to offer is perhaps for all of us, uh, when we're prepared and when we're ready, maybe a place to begin to move into healing. And that's not where we are yet. We're not at Easter yet. We're still smack dab in the middle of a Good Friday experience. And so we don't want to rush that. We just want to make space for when we're ready, we're going to move in to that. So uh, next week, as we jump into the series um, full on, we're going to look at a story in John chapter 9 that um, seeks to understand God's role in the things that happen in our lives. Some of the questions I've been getting is like, the, like what is God's role? Does, is this, there's often some victim blaming that goes on with this. Well, if you'd done this, this, and this, maybe it wouldn't have happened. Or God's just trying to get our attention with this. Is that how God works? Is that what God's all about? Is that really a healthy, holistic way to, is that a God we even want to encounter? A God who just does stuff 
to us to see what we'll do. Like we're like mice in a laboratory or something like that. I, 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 spoiler alert, I don't think that's what God is like. Um, and so next week we're going to jump into that. And so my hope is if you have questions, if you have things that you're carrying around and wondering about, please, uh, you can send those to me on Facebook, through Messenger, through uh, the Grace Point page on Facebook, uh, private message. You can email me at josh at gracepoint with an E dot net. Um, and I would love to be able to respond uh, to, to whatever it is. And again, my responses may be, huh, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but, but <laughs> I'll offer whatever hints and guesses I possibly can. Grace Point, uh, I miss you so much. I miss your presence. I miss your hugs. I miss the energy. I'm so tired of talking to a camera, but I really want you to know that as a community, what we're doing right now is saving lives. And you have been um, incredible during this time. Uh, each week, our engagement has gone up. Each week, the number of views of our gatherings have gone up. Um, you, you all have been generous. You have been kind. This is you, you really are showing why this is an amazing community to be a part of. And so from your leadership, we just want to say thank you very much. Thank you for the love, the welcome, the virtual hugs, what you're doing to help make this community not only uh, exist, but thrive even in this time as we seek to make meaning together. So I uh, hope you'll join us next week. And if you have uh, needs, questions, concerns, pastoral care needs, please reach out as well because we still um, we still want to be there for you during these days. Thanks so much, Grace Point. Grace and peace be with you.